Hey guys, you are listening to Killer Cocktails, where the drinks are stiff, but the bodies are stiffer. This is a casual true crime podcast where two friends get drunk and talk about gruesome murders. Each week we pick a different drink whose name or ingredients set the tone for our stories. Hey guys, welcome back for another week of Killer Cocktails. This is Drea. And this is Jackie. And we are doing the Mai Tai cocktail. Oh yeah, it's funky. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever had a real Mai Tai, but right now I do not like them. Let me tell you, I thought that I liked them and I don't like this. Okay, but like in a, not a professional setting, but like if you're at the bar and you order a Mai Tai, you enjoy them. I have memories of enjoying my ties, yes. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we know what went wrong. Jackie, what went wrong with our cocktail? We are bad bartenders. <laughs> but besides that, I think it was an ingredient. So our intern, Kimry, our producer, Kimry, she's graduated. Thank you, Kimry. There was a whole ceremony and a parade. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> but she got us a funky Jamaican rum, which is what the recipe calls for. But so... This, this all started, I emailed Kimmery and I was like, hey, I felt like I had pretty strong feelings about the Mai Tai. And I was like, we really got to make it because I have, I remember my dad took me to Trader Vic's in Oakland and like made a whole big thing about how this was where the Mai Tais came from. Like, and I'm a kid at the time. I'm definitely not having a Mai Tai. And so in my head, there's a real connection between Trader Vic's and Mai Tais. So I was like, we got to make sure we talk about, because like as a young petite baby child, I, I knew that was the story. That's where those came from. Mm-hmm. So we like find that whole history. I send it to Kimmery and it was really specific about the original version of it and then kind of the bastardized version that hit Hawaii. I, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, we definitely uh, we'll post the you know recipe on our Instagram, but don't follow that one. Get get a better one. Um, we we did our best. We did a traditional one, and then we did uh, a more like mainstream version. And I didn't like either one. No, and with the traditional one, they make a big deal about what makes it traditional is you got to use a funky rum, mm-hmm. and which, which we got. Yeah, so what makes it funky, so it, it specifically called out a pot-stilled rum. And so Kimmery went out, and she's like, I got to get this specific type of rum. She gets it. Whoo, doggy. <laughs> when we popped it open, it smelled, I mean, funky is an appropriate term. It smelled mm. funky. Mm-hmm. And we were like, all right, cool. That's going to mix somehow and become less funky. No. The whole <laughs> The whole drink tasted like that funk. I think it got like energy from the other ingredients and it was just like, oh, I've leveled up and here's the funk. And it was so gross. It was was George Clinton style (laughs) funk. It was off the chain. What is George Clinton is a funk artist. Okay. Like, like long dreads that are multicolor. You, uh, atomic. What's the name? George Clinton. (laughs) I was thinking Bill Clinton. Yeah, I know you were. (laughs) Oh, when you, you said the funk a different way. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's an off color joke. Oh, she's going to keep going. Um, once you <laughs> no. said dreads, I realized I had the wrong Yeah, different person. person. Yeah. Um, well, Jackie, it's funny that you should mention Trader Vic because I'm going to give you the backstory of the But wait, let me tell you about this funkiness. Oh, all right. Fine, fine, fine. Go for it. <laughs> You're stepping on my funk. Sorry. <laughs> so... Uh, in the beginning, all rum was funky. 
A merchant in Philadelphia wrote in 1702 that the customers only wanted to buy rum that had the right kind of rum stink. It was like a selling point. So did we just get a bad funk? Uh, no, I think our like just tastes have evolved and we're not into that funky flavor. Okay. So like this is, I, I think this is the right product to make it the traditional way. I think we're mm-hmm. just not fans of the traditional way. I bet you if we got Matt on here, he can make it correctly. Yeah, we should ask him about it. Yeah, our, our bartender friend, Matt. All okay, right, we'll, so we'll learn. <laughs> now you can continue on with your story. Oh, thank you. Okay, so... Here's the Mai Tai history for y'all. In 1934, Victor Jules Bergerson, or Trader Vic, as he became known, opened his first restaurant in Oakland, San Francisco. Boom, boom, been there. Where'd you been there? That's crazy. Did you like it? I did. The whole thing was very fancy. I feel like mm-hmm. I had to dress up, and this was during the days where it was hard to get Jackie into a dress. Uh, I think I had shrimp to eat, and a Shirley Temple, <laughs> I kind of had the time of my life. We were there with like clients of his who he would tell stories about me and they were like, we got to meet Jackie. They were obsessed with Beanie Babies. Um, It was an interesting lunch, but it's memorable. But it was fancy. I didn't picture this place as being fancy, but it well fancy to a child. So I think it was more kitschy than fancy. Child fancy. I gotcha. Yeah. Uh, uh, So, okay. So uh, Trader Vic would serve Polynesian food with a mix of Chinese, French, and American dishes cooked in wood fire, uh, fired ovens. But he's best known for the rum-based cocktails he created and particularly for the Mai Tai. Mm-hmm. The, the story goes that one evening in 1944, he tested a new drink on two friends from Tahiti, Ham and Carrie Guild. After the first sip, Carrie uh, said to have explained... Mai Tai Rore, which is, bless you. Um, after the first sip, Carrie is said to have exclaimed, Mai Tai Rore, which is Tahitian means uh, out of this world the best. Thus, Bergeson created and named the Mai Tai cocktail. Got it. Uh, and then there's also some like feud between him and this guy, Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant. And uh, he's he's like an owner of a Hollywood bar. And he's like, nah, I did this. And um, you know how that goes. But Vic yeah. is uh, Vic is quoted to have said, anybody who says I didn't create this drink is a dirty stinker. Ooh, <laughs> quite, quite an insult. Yes. Yeah. The highest insult. Um, so, yeah, that's your history of the Mai Tai. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Well, do I like it? I thought I liked it. I feel like I had a Mai Tai when I was down in costa rica and i can't remember if i liked it or if i was surprised that i didn't like it now i'm having a real like i'm i'm questioning my memory <laughs> no I, I bet you you liked it and it's just this one the recipe we did and the ingredients that we use and the way we prepared it i would give this a zero out of ten and i would never drink this cocktail but i will order it for real one day so i can actually try it but did we didn't like the second one either yeah i hated it but did we, we didn't use the funky rum on the second one. But I believe that we are such bad bartenders. There that- is that. <laughs> we really need to take a bartender's class. Well, we have milestones, and we'll post it someday. But one of our milestones when we hit it is we will pay to go to bartending school. Like a condensed version. Like a yeah. little baby version. Like an afternoon put on by Parks and Rec. Yeah. <laughs> Adult continuation education. Um, but yeah, the has been cocktail hour, and I think it's murder time. It is murder time. Jackie, do you want to go first? Do you I want me go, to go first? I will go first. You said yours is a real bummer. Um, yeah, just because it's sad, and like to me, it kind of hits. Uh, it, we, we, all right, here we go. Okay. All right. So we're in the 
maybe like late 80s, more like early 90s, okay? Like 1990-ish or maybe cusp into. Um, I'm going to tell you about Molly LaRue and Jeff Hood. Okay. So uh, they're in their mid-20s. They met in Salina, Salina, uh, Kansas. They were working for a kind of a church-sponsored group that took at-risk kids out into the backcountry. Um, so Jeff's about 26, and he's originally from Tennessee. Um, people described him as friendly, contemplative, even-tempered, patient. He was just kind of like a nice, chill dude from Tennessee. And Molly was 25, and she's described as, like, super bubbly, sunny, energetic. She was an artist. Um, in high school, she won a contest uh, to design a U.S. postage stamp. Mm-hmm. So, like, talented. Um, Jeff had... Uh, Rock climbed in Colorado, and he had been um, like a teacher at, there's a big giant Boy Scout camp called Philmont. Um, it's in New Mexico. And he taught climbing there. So he had this really like, uh, at least scouting oriented, um, and then because they met at this like church group thing, like very much teach children about the outdoors. Uh, and Molly had completed, I think, two courses through Outward Bound, um, and she had spent a year doing like wilderness therapy with kids in the Arizona desert. So both of them have a background in like connecting troubled youth with uh, nature. Um, so they're both working for this camp and they learn that um, come May that they're going to get laid off. So they're like, all right, what do we want to do? Um, let's let's go hike the Appalachian Trail. So the AT is a very popular, very famous long um, from one part of America down in the south all the way up to Canada. So the similar thing kind of for us is the PCT. So you have the PCT that goes from Mexico to Canada, and then you have the ACT that goes, it's just over there um, in the Appalachian chain instead of gotcha. like going through the Sierra and the Cascades and stuff. Is, is the AT like a more strenuous hike? Um, more technical? I'm, I don't know. I've ne- I haven't done either. I feel like anecdotally the at would be worse because i feel like you're dealing with humidity in a way that Mm. you're not on the west coast and probably bugs in a way that you're not on the west coast Ah, bugs are the worst okay yeah i I feel like like mosquito like you know i i just i think with the pct you've got fire dangers you've got um like snowpack that'll Mm -hmm. affect the but i think in terms of a strenuous hike i don't know elevation wise what you're if you're doing more I don't really know enough about it, but I know the AT is definitely a very strenuous hike. Gotcha. Um, so there's kind of a cute story uh, from her dad. Uh, he gets a call from her and she goes, you know, I've always wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail and I have a friend who wants to do it with me. Do you want to know something about this friend? And he's like, yeah. And she goes, he's a male. And he goes, are you announcing that you're in a relationship? And she goes, yes, I am. Oh, <laughs> so her family hadn't met him. She just like they are having this like they're in the early stages of like really into each other. Um, and they decide that they're going to go hike the the AT. So they're pretty much inseparable is kind of how people describe them. They cash in all their savings so that they can afford the trip because it's very sp- expensive. You're spending months out on the trail and you have to not yeah. only have the gear, but then you're doing food drops and you're doing resupplies and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they decide that they're going to go southbound. So they're going to go from Maine down and okay. only about one in every 10 hikers goes that route almost everybody is going to go no bow they're going to go from the south and head up north gotcha. um pct is kind of the same way most people go northbound as well um, i don't know if that has to do with like you're saving the heart like just weather in the different regions or like i remember when my friend and i did lost coast which is obviously much shorter it's about a 20 mile hike um everybody goes south to north 
excuse me, everyone goes north to south, so you have the wind at your back. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it has to do with like weather and stuff, but anyway. So they decided to do it and they're doing it kind of in a unique, a unique way where there's less people on the trail the time of year that they're going. So it's a little bit kind of closer knit group between all those hikers because they're gotcha. just, they're not one of many, many. Um, so on June 3rd, 1990, they climbed to the peak of Mount Katahdin. So this is typically where most AT hikers are going to end their hike is they end with this big giant like peak and then they all take a picture with the Mount Katahdin sign. Um, so there's... Uh, numerous entries in their shared journal with each other as they are going about how difficult the hike is and how like they knew there would be days like this but like it's super rough Um, but then like interspersed with that there's all these entries in like trail logbooks all the way down the trail Mm -hmm. Um, and it's pretty clear to anyone who reads them that they're they're having a very fun time and they're also sorry when you say entries so it sounds like they're physical ledgers and then there's also are they like like getting internet and they're writing no no oh. so and because it's also back in like 1990 so you've got oh. their own little uh journal that they keep that they're like writing in their tent at night and gotcha. then if you go to a shelter there's a trail log book if you go into like certain outdoor stores at the front we'll have like a trail log book if they're a resupply spot if there's a famous like restaurant where everyone goes and gets coffee when they're coming off the trail they might have a log book so it's kind of sparse throughout the trail um and that's where everyone's putting their trail names and they're like hey you know monkey foot was here on blah 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 (laughs) Uh, i've got crazy blisters can't wait to get new socks or whatever it is um so they're leaving all these uh notes and stuff and molly's trail name is nalgene like a nalgene bottle oh and and jeff is clevis and i don't know what that's in reference to I Googled it and Clevis is like a type of fastener. And I was like, that mm-hmm. doesn't make a ton of sense. And then I went Clevis Urban Dictionary and a bunch of horrible stuff popped up. Oh, no. um, <laughs> so I imagine it's none of those definitions and it's some sort of inside joke. Uh, but so a ton of the information that I'm going to have for this story came from a really great article in Outside Magazine. So the guy who wrote the article, his name is Earl Swift. And it's much like um, how John Krakauer when he wrote the piece for Outside Magazine about Everest, he was there. This guy, Earl Swift, was on the trail and met Molly and Jeff. And so it's very, this story is very personal to him. Um, so he's on the trail and he's behind Molly and Jeff. Um, so he writes how like they're just kind of this positive force for the beginning part of his trip for the first several days where he kept coming across their names in trail books and he's like dude this girl has so much energy like she's writing poems about how much the bugs suck like (laughs) i i can't wait to meet these guys up the trail and at one point molly jokes in one of the log books and she's like if you're behind us you will pass us because they're going (laughs) they're going at a very slow pace and they're just kind of like having fun and they're not just trying to get miles to get miles it's very much an adventure for them Mm -hmm. um so he's like i was really excited to meet them uh because they keep stopping they're taking pictures of plants um they're baking bread they would like stop and like because they have a background in like troubled youth kids if they didn't count like they'd coach kids they ran into in shelters who were like runaways um yeah they're just kind of out there being sweet so the author earl he's got he meets up with some guy i think who kind of lives in the area but he's doing the trail and his uh his name is animal is his trail name Mm -hmm. um so he and animal are like dude we cannot wait to catch these two they're going to be so fun when we get there um then on 
July 20th at this shelter, um, they come across him. They meet them. He's like, oh, my God, they are exactly like how we thought they would be. Uh, she's just kind of this like blonde, dimple, quick to smile. Like she looks super fit. Um, he's got this like high pitched Tennessee drawl. Like they're they're hmm. characters and they're so fun and they're chatting with them. And then all of a sudden this dude shows up. So they're in a shelter and they've kind of like set their stuff aside. This guy comes in and he's got a big old beard. Uh, he's wearing like a black baggy suit, big brimmed hat. Um, he comes in. There's no pleasantries. Doesn't say hello. Uh, he goes, I want the east wall, of the shelter. And Animal's already put his stuff there. And Animal's like, uh, no, you're going to have to be okay with the middle. I'm already here. And then everyone kind of like starts talking again. So the guy's just like super abrupt and he's not really friendly like everyone else in the shelter because there's another couple people who are also like i think doing sections of the trail um and so everyone's kind of getting along and chatting except this one guy then and it turns out that guy's name is reuben so then reuben like interrupts their conversation he's like hey how come you have that backpack i heard that was a bad backpack and so then earl's like well i mean i like it like he's just kind of a conversation killer Mm -hmm. um then as the sun starts to go down this dude reuben pulls out a six pack of old milwaukee tall boys crushes all of them he's hiking with that yeah he must just be doing like a section of it (laughs) he crushes all these beers uh and then he begins to celebrate the sabbath so he's chanting and wailing he's dancing in the middle of the shelter for an hour then it's two hours now he's still doing all this and it's like 9 30 so then animal left animal who gets like who was in the original original kind of altercation with him he goes are you almost through and the guy nods and then he goes back to doing it then shortly after 10 um he like stops he eats a bunch of bread um and then animals like people are trying to sleep and he like motions towards everybody uh he goes there's got to be a way that you can pray by yourself and not involve all of us and the guy like kind of brushes him off he's like they're all sleeping through it um and then molly yells out i'm not sleeping through it and then everybody's like no like so then i guess he finally stops he goes back to he goes to sleep then the next morning they're all getting ready and he's just like amped and he's kind of being kind of nuts and everyone's just kind of ignoring him so then uh they all leave the shelter and then animal jeff molly earl they're like hey we'll meet up down the trail and we'll all hang out so then uh, they leave, they do, they meet back up. They're like all making fun of Ruben. They're like, dude, that dude was nuts. I can't believe like he was that way. And they're talking about like commonality. I think Earl had interviewed for a job where they were from. So they're all just kind of like becoming friends. And I think at one point Jeff like hitchhikes off to go get beers and comes back. Um, so now they've met and hung out then they kind of part ways and they're like we'll obviously run into each other again because there's a lot of like leapfrogging that happens between groups because maybe you're making good mileage but then you'll pop into town to take a shower and stay in a hotel for a night and then people kind of catch up to you um so then on september 5th 1990 so now we're gonna like come off of that story for a minute there's a 38 year old farmhand uh who's uh, on a South Carolina tobacco, uh, tobacco farm, I guess. He gets onto a Greyhound. He gets a one-way ticket north. Um, and he, then he just starts kind of like bebopping all around. He's hitchhiking. He gets himself to a library in um, where he's in Pittsburgh somewhere. And he goes to the librarian. And he says that he wants like he's looking for hiking maps and there's a logbook and he signs in under the name casey horn 
So his name is not Casey Horn. His name is Paul David Cruz. And the reason he's going by this alias is because he's already a suspect in a murder. Oh. So four years before that, in 1986, um, a woman had offered him a ride home. And she was then later found uh, naked and nearly decapitated on an abandoned railroad bed. So they're looking for him. So the brother, like, kind of, like, shelters him, gets him, and he's like, go off into the woods. So he, like, runs away from this murder. So people are looking for Cruz, so he's using this alias. Um, Then he, like bounces around he gets married a couple times one of the wives like wakes up and he's got like an old school bayonet at her neck and she's like cool we're divorcing that's not awesome um what the hell wait that was his wife he did that to yeah um so there's like a bunch of like little like crimes and he's just kind of like being scary um so he's now on his way to the appalachian trail Mm. so you've got our couple who's like traveling down, making friends, being awesome. And now you've got this guy who's going to join in onto the trail. And it's um, not Reuben. And it's not Reuben. No, like okay. originally when I'm reading this story, I'm like, oh, this Reuben guy's going to be. And it's really just something that they all bonded over that there was kind of this crazy guy okay. was like a moment that they all had. Gotcha. Um, so. The, <clears throat> excuse me. So then um, he gets on. He's got a. Uh, a flannel shirt, jeans, combat boots, a small little rucksack, and he has two bright gym bags. So he's not dressed like uh, like a through hiker. Um, yeah. And Your like weight the, is all disproportionate. Yeah, and like the bags are like they're Marlboro, like they're like from cigarette points. Um, so he's just like out there, kind of. He's a he sticks out. Uh, so then he makes his way onto the trail, and he's kind of having weird interactions with people. Um, Jeff and Molly uh, get to a point on the trail where they get into town and they've called their parents and they're like checking in like oh we're gonna go do whatever she had family that lived in the same town so she was gonna go have like uh, breakfast with a grandma or somebody like a great aunt Um, Jeff's on the phone with his dad and he's like hey when we get back we've got really big news for everybody which now everyone just kind of like has conjecture about that like they probably got engaged on the trail um so they leave they go and have uh breakfast with the with the with a great aunt and a couple other relatives they go to a nearby truck stop they pick up their mail they do some little like grocery shopping and stuff and they leave town around like 3:45, and they're headed back up so there's a shelter called thelma Mar- marks and that's where they're headed so they believe that they got there around five and it's a shelter that kind of comfortably fits like four or five people, but you can get as many as eight people in there. And basically a couple comes across their bodies the next day or a day or two after. Um, they don't really know exactly what happened. They think that crews came upon them in the shelter that they were already there. Mm-hmm. And he had a 22 caliber revolver and he shot they when they found jeff's body he was over in the corner and it looked like he was sleeping so it's possible that he was just sleeping and he came in and shot jeff um but he he bound molly and he raped molly and he shot molly um and this is like they're a couple they're on the like what's so scary is that they're really deep out in the woods they're not alone um 
like this kind of crime like this doesn't happen and it was really scary to like one they felt safe and like they weren't in danger of anything happening while they're like staying in a shelter um but then like the ripples of that through everybody hiking on the trail is kind of like this is crazy and that they were really wonderful people and so the so Cruz had stolen the hiking boots off of Jeff and he stole his kind of uh, it was a really nice, really expensive Gregory backpack with like purple sides. So it kind of stuck out. It was an obvious backpack. Um, so when news had gotten to everybody on the trail that this had happened, this one hiker was like, I'm going to find that guy. And he went hiking around looking for him. And then he saw the dude <gasps> wearing the backpack. <gasps> contacted police and was like this is where the guy is he's got Je- he's got jeff's backpack and that yeah. was how they caught him what that's crazy because the dude had left he had like left a bunch of his bags um there later his lawyer is like oh yeah he's not really like a hiker he hikes with like a, a pack of cigarettes full of cocaine and a bottle of jim beam jesus he just like gets loaded and goes off onto the trail so he you, so usually i the, take mountain house or yeah <laughs> so part part of the argument is like uh he was kind of in this like coke fueled crazy spree when it happened yeah. um crews won't say what happened they can't get anything out of him there's no rhyme or reason why those guys why um he just he went to jail originally he was given a uh he was going to die of lethal injection mm-hmm. and then i think it was commuted to life in prison um, the couple that found them, their names are Biff and Cindy Bowen. Um, after they had like, you know, told police, cause they had to hike out and go tell police. And then police in like detectives in normal shoes had a really hard time getting to the shelter. When they got there, it was dark. And then they had to like bring all these ATs. It was like wow. a difficult scene for them to deal with, but there was all sorts of evidence. Like, uh, it was kind of an open and shut case against Cruz. And yeah. then when that couple got back on the trail, they couldn't stay in shelters anymore. Like, they were just scared. Yeah, um, definitely. But Jeff's mom is the one that picked them up at the end of the trail. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Mm. And then, like, afterwards, like, members of both their families have, like, gone, like, a, a, like two or three years afterwards, like, a sibling or two met up and was like, I'm going to finish the trail from where that happened on um and it was so the the original shelter the Thelma Marks shelter has since been like torn apart burned down they had a big bonfire and they've built a new one that has a different name um doesn't have the same gory history yeah but I I did not know anything about about that that's crazy so like as a backpacker that's so scary yeah no I'm uh, I'm getting chills and I'm like (laughs) starting to tear up because it's like woo. um so were there any outlying, like, was he doing anything before, like, getting to that shelter? Like, had he been to other shelters? Or was he, like, causing I don't think so. Like, stories like else. the other guy where, okay. like, he's being a weirdo. Yeah. I, I don't know. Okay. I would I would recommend, like, details-wise, like, go find this article on OutsideOnline.com. I think that's how you get to Outside Magazine, their online version of it. Um because it's super detailed. And the guy, the guy is a writer, so like everything's really descriptive, and you kind of feel like you're on it. And there's all sorts of details that are just kind of like about being a through hiker. Um, yeah, I wonder if it like it's for like Into the Wild, you know that book and that mm-hmm. movie, how that like blew up the PCT. I wonder if this case kind of like dissolves people from going on the AT that following year. You know, I don't know. Yeah, because I'm trying to think when the movie. Because Bill Bryson had that book about the AT, A Walk in the Woods, or 
I haven't, I haven't, I've started it and I haven't finished it. It's a very funny book. Um, they just made a movie about it. It's got Robert Redford in it, I think. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the, cause it's at this point now it's so long ago. It was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, and then there was another crime that happened in like 2014 mm-hmm. where someone was killed on the trail. Like, it's just so rare that people are killed on a giant backpacking like through hike um but when that other one happened a couple years ago everyone was like oh my god do you remember that crazy grizzly um Mm. through a lot of like tied articles yeah in that way that's so sad um oh what was your tie to the my tie oh originally i was gonna tell any story and then i was just gonna go that's my tie for the my tie (laughs) um but she she was bound and i figured oh that's a tie yeah gotcha um that that was that story is because like i i go on a lot of hikes and i know you go on a lot of hikes so it's just it's jarring to think you think that you'd be safe out there in the middle of the woods well like i have like michelle and i have had this whole conversation of because she'll do a lot of like solo hikes and i've always really aspired to do that but there's a real fearfulness of being out on the trail by yourself Mm -hmm. um and this one just points to like it doesn't matter if you're by your like nefarious things will find you regardless yeah Whew. Well, Jackie, thank you. I would encourage everyone to still backpack. This doesn't mean you shouldn't go backpacking. Yeah. I think but if it's anything, just a very scary story. It, it just shows you that you still need to get out there and do stuff because no matter where you are, something can always happen. So you might as well enjoy life. Yeah. Yeah. To the fullest. Um, all right, you guys, we are going to take a quick break. We are not going to refresh our drinks, um, <laughs> but we'll see you in a second. Okay. Bye, guys. Hey guys, we're doing another break. It's starting to become a routine, but we wanted to let you guys know that you have 12 more days to take your fun picture with our Killer Cocktails sticker. Uh, Remember, you are entering to win our cool Killer Cocktails t-shirt. All proceeds are going to new microphones, and we just want to keep making the show better and better and better for you, and we want to get you guys some cool swag. Yeah. All right. Now back to the episode. Hey guys, we're back from our break. Wasn't that a nice little uh, ad from our sponsors? Yeah. That was me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you, you do love the sound of your own voice. Sometimes. It took me a while. Okay, so we're going to jump into my murder. And um, most of what I got for this story, I got from East Bay Times um, and SF Weekly. And Angela Hill writes for the East Bay Times, and she did a really good article about this. This is a hometown murder? Oh, I was like, what are you doing with your face? I'm like, I know that paper. Yeah, yeah. And then the SF Weekly, we have Bob Calhoun, who's uh, who also did a really good article. Oh, um, no. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to jump right in. I'm going to tell you about some murders, and then we're going to jump into the main one. Um, in 1961, Maria Kavanaugh, uh, who lived in Vallejo, was found strangled to death. Um, in 1962, Maria Ventura, who's 30, lived in San Jose, and she was found dead in a vacant lot, and she had also been strangled. On February 10th of 1963, 44-year-old Marin Skidgear, um, her car is found abandoned in a super par- supermarket parking lot, and, like, it's really weird because, like, her driver's side door is wide open and her headlights are on and like there's like mud in her back seat and like i want to say her shoe or two shoes were found so it looked like something had happened and uh she'd been shopping at the grocery store and like like an hour later her husband was like 
where's my wife? She hasn't come home. Like something's going on. So immediately him and his son go out looking for her. And like the next morning she's found a couple blocks away in a, a churchyard parking lot. And she'd been That's... strangled to death. And like her throat had been cut and like this electrical wire had been wrapped around both of her legs. And, um, eerily enough, um, at 1am the night she went missing, the family received a phone call, but no one was on the line. Ugh. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to jump into the, the main story that I'm covering. Um, Mary Elizabeth Martin, also known as Betty to her friends, is born in 1919. Uh, she meets her husband, Dr. Frank Martin, who's a doctor of osteopathic, uh, medicine. And, uh, he works in downtown Oakland. Uh, Oakland is my tie. Uh, this cocktail's origins are in Oakland, yeah. California. So there's my tie to the cocktail. Um, they met while they were singing in the choir at their Presbyterian church. Oh, wholesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Betty enjoys doing the crossword puzzle, but um, overall she's very busy raising her two daughters and she is like taking care of their huge house and it's in the Oakland Hills. And she's also the intercultural head of the Oakland Council of Church Women. Hmm. So she's like very immersed in the community. Everybody knows them and loves them. And she's actually named Oakland's Mother of the Year for her civic and church work in 1963. Dang. Yeah. And um, so Betty has two daughters. And uh, at this point, they are teenagers. And one is named Caroline. And she's 18 years old. And she's a student at Chico State. Chico? And she's studying to be a teacher and she's a good student and she's well known and liked and has a steady boyfriend and her sister Susan is 16 and she's also well known and liked and she's one of like the lead girls at pep rallies and she also has a steady boyfriend. Uh, The Martin's home is this 12 room mansion and it's located on Ashmount Avenue in Oakland's upscale Crocker Highlands district and they have this giant grand piano in their living room and they have this like really small black and white Pekingese dog named TD uh, for touchdown. (laughs) Oh my god. And um, so on January 22nd, 1964, they just, you know, wake up and they start an average day. It's a Wednesday. It's kind of cold. It's a little damp outside. It's Oakland. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Frank uh, gets up and he's like on his way to work and he drops off Susan at school and Caroline is um, back at home on winter break from Chico and she had just arrived the previous night and they didn't have much planned for the day so Caroline and her mom decide to go uh, drop off TD at the SPCA to get his um, vaccines and at 9.45 a.m.-ish, Betty and Caroline pick up TD and with no stops they likely returned home about 10.20 a.m. Okay. But what they didn't know was there was a man waiting inside their house. Uh, Do they have any kind of security? Not really because of the time. Yeah, I doubt that they have security. Like, I was even wondering if the doors were locked, but maybe they were. Yeah. 12-room house? 12-room house, yeah. And I'm imagining this is in the Oakland Hills. I don't really know the address that you gave me, but I'm imagining it's like... Yeah, it's definitely in the Oakland Hills. Yeah, Yeah, it's up there. Um... So as they're walking in, uh, Becky is um, hit with a heavy ashtray to her head. Um, This man then attacks Caroline. He proceeds to rape her. Uh, Betty is then strangled to death with an electrical cord from a nearby lamp. And Caroline is then strangled with a silk stocking. So he didn't Uh, bring any tools or anything with him. Like, this is just... It's so strange. Yeah. Um, he then hogties their bodies with the electrical cord from the lamp and the silk stockings. Um, in some articles, they were saying that he 
posed the bodies in a way where like their legs were propped like one leg was like hoisted up into the air um and it was kind of like what he was uh what had happened to that previous woman i was telling you about how her like legs were tied um but then um he also left them face down and he left the house without stealing anything um then at 5 30 p.m susan betty's younger daughter comes home from school and finds her mother and sister dead in the living room and their dog td is waiting beside them unharmed how old is that daughter she's 16 and like she just got done with school and pep rally and her boyfriend her boyfriend just dropped her off and she's like okay see you later and her sister's home from school yeah yeah So Frank comes home from work and he's met by police officers and they tell him what happened. And Frank has been at work all day. Um, it's confirmed by patients and coworkers. Um, so he's devastated. Um, n- neighbors report seeing nothing and hearing nothing. There was no forced entry. There are fingerprints belonging to the attacker. Um, and there's also blood and semen found. However, forensic evidence wouldn't start being a thing until 1984. Yeah. So this evidence isn't really helpful this right is, now. This is in the 60s, right? This is uh, 60s, yeah. Yeah. So 64, yeah. Uh, So dozens of officers are assigned to the case, and for at least six months, four detectives work solely on the case. Dang. Yeah. And out of more than 3,000 people interviewed, one one young man stood out as a suspect, a student at Cal who knew Caroline. Uh, Police interrogate him for a really long time until his uh, father shows up with their attorneys, and they have to release him. Uh, But... But detectives are sure that he's the killer. So a detective goes undercover as a UC Berkeley student, and he sits in the classes with the, the with this dude, and he's like trying to overhear everything, and he like never gets any evidence from it, and so it kind of just goes cold. Huh. Um, and then um, several years later, a mentally ill man in Walnut Creek claims falsely to have knowledge of the killing. So that also leads to a dead end. So in the meantime, uh, investigators uh, work with other jurisdictions. Jur- which is crazy for that time yeah uh, to match the fingerprint found at the scene and they compare it to the boston strangler and other cases but there was never a match well and i imagine they also like what time when was zodiac going on oh call- he was in the 60s to 70s i looked him up because he yeah. was kind of a so yeah. I, I imagine they're also like you know okay nope not him there's mm-hmm. a bunch of yeah yeah not quite uh, the time of the prime but getting there Mm-hmm. people are ramping up so We're going to go back. So five days later, after Betty and Caroline have been killed, Jane uh, Stapleton is found dead at 3.30 a.m. by her son in their San Pablo home on January 27th, 1964. Jane's skull is fractured and her mouth is bloodied. She died from uh, suffocation, but investigators couldn't determine how. A cord from a soldering iron found near the body was thought to be a potential murder weapon. So whoever's doing this is like using stuff around his environment uh jane was a highly religious woman according to the examiner and she was the wife of san pablo uh, police sergeant hal stapleton and Mm. he was out driving a patrol car at the time of the murder damn she was dropped off at her home by her daughter and son-in-law shortly after 1 a.m the son-in-law james keith was briefly a suspect in the murder investigation and checked himself into the psych ward at contra costa county hospital after taking a polygraph test dang um the Tribune offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to arrest in the Martin and Stapleton murders in February of 1964, but no one came forward. The paper withdrew the reward offers on December 21st, 1975. The mm-hmm. murders of Maria uh, Kavanaugh, Maria Ventura, Marin uh, 
Gafer, Jane Stapleton, and Biddy and Caroline Martin from 1961 to 1964 are all unsolved. Wow. The San Pablo Police Department is currently in the process of reviewing the Jane Stapleton investigation, and they are encouraging anyone with information on Jane's case to call the San Pablo's PD uh, crime tip line at 510-799-8255. And Oakland investigators still welcome calls from anyone who might have information on Betty and Caroline's uh, case. And they have uh, would like you to call 510-238-3821. Is your, is your story an unsolved crime? Yeah. So there's not... So no resolution. No resolution. So there's like a thought that they are all linked together, or at uh-huh. least some of them. Um, it was just too close. To, like the, the time frame was all too close and like the scenarios were all too similar. Um, but yeah, they're all unsolved. What do we what do we think of the Golden State Killer? Does this not match him at all? Uh, what was his time frame? I feel like uh, he so the, the Golden State Killer, um, he was doing his stuff from like 1974 to 1986. So it like might have been early, but I don't know how when he was born, I don't know how old he would have been. Yeah. Because I know he was, like, in the police department, and mm-hmm. he, yeah. <sighs> but, yeah, that, that area during that time frame was just so scary. Yikes. Yeah. Dude, um, Drea. Yeah. Well, here's how, you know, maybe that pings somebody and they remember something. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, internet sleuths, they they can solve some true crimes and I'm mm-hmm. I'm interested to see if these um, get picked up because I know they still have DNA from a couple of these cases. So hopefully with the genial DNA information so, coming sometimes out. Sometimes that's all that needs to happen. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. That's going to wrap up this week's episode. Um, that, this was the Mai Tai cocktail. I hope you could go find a delicious one somewhere. <laughs> it's definitely yeah, not I my f- cocktail. I feel like there are delicious ones out there. I refuse to believe it's a bad drink. <laughs> it's so popular. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It I has think to be we're, good. I think we're bad bartenders. <laughs> it's the only explanation. Well, so uh, we posted the Dirty Monkey uh, this past week, and uh, Healed 10 from Instagram was like, this is what you got to do. Y'all got to buy some plane tickets to Jamaica and, like, belly <laughs> up to a bar and, like, we, have them make you knew, one. We knew that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes, get yourself a good bartender and get this cocktail in your belly. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Killer Cocktails. As always, on our talent was Jackie Andrea. Uh, be sure to check out our Instagram at Killer Cocktails Podcast or stop by our website, KillerCocktailsPodcast.com, for up-to-date information, photos, contests, and more. Our logo was created by Michelle Firm, whose amazing art can be found at MichelleFirmDesign.com. Our music was created by Nikolai Heidlus, and we'll be back next week on hashtag Murder Mondays. Um, uh, what was that noise that noise is the you're up next to draft and fantasy football oh yeah uh surprise i'm actually a real big football fantasy fan (laughs) (laughs) all right now back to the episode Good inter- interruption, Jackie. <laughs> I, I, I said I stopped, everything. I stopped listening. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that so uh, I was like, ah, oh, Dre's talking, and I kind of like daydreamed off. And then I was like, oh, she's wrapping up. <laughs>